Are you one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday? Each week, you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, Vertical Transport and Cities. Your teacher is Associate Professor Kurt Iverson, Urban Geographer at the University of Sydney. Kurt, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Richard. We talk a lot about getting around our city, but what about our ability to go up and down in our city? Well, that's right. For all the uh, books and articles and public debates that we have about trains and cars, we spend a lot less time thinking about vertical transport and uh, it's no less important or no less significant. Um, And I found a lovely little passage in a book about the Empire State Building by uh, an author, Mark Kingwell, that really sets up what I wanted to talk about today. Mm, Tell us. He says, yeah. So he says, most of us, most of the time can simply take the elevator for granted. I enter a small room, the doors close. And when they open again, I'm somewhere else. The taken-for-granted elevator is perhaps the closest thing we have to the Star Trek transporter device. <laughs> and it's so ordinary, we hardly even think about it. Well, it's not, uh, it's not set and forget anymore, isn't it? COVID's changed all that. Oh, exactly. It's a great time to talk about this because in central business districts and high-rise apartment buildings the world over, including here in Sydney, that easy and taken-for-granted operation of those vertical transporter devices has been like thrown into disarray, hasn't it, by all the physical distancing restrictions that are limiting the number of passengers who can share a lift. Mm. There's queues and long waits everywhere. Yeah. Now, this story goes back to 1853, doesn't it? It does. So, look, uh, up until that time, there was mechanical transportation, vertical transportation. You could use hoists to uh, lift goods and people up and down, but should the cable break disaster would follow, uh, and that safety problem really limited the heights of buildings at that time. But uh, it was solved around the 1850s by uh, a man called Elisha Otis, who was the founding director of the Otis Elevator Company that's still in operation today. Uh, And he solved the problem with a simple but really ingenious system that meant that even if a cable that was holding a lift were to snap, its occupants wouldn't come to any harm. Mm. And uh, he demonstrated this invention at the World Fair in New York. It's a great little story. Yeah, well, tell us about that moment because it's very dramatic, isn't it? Oh, it is, right? So just picture the Crystal Palace in New York City in 1853 at the World Fair and Otis goes there and builds an open lift shaft in one of the exhibition halls. And then uh, at the you know, appointed moment, he ascends to a really significant height on a platform that's held aloft by a cable. And to the horror of the crowd, he then has an assistant dramatically cut the cable with a sword that was holding him up. Uh, But before he could plummet back down to the ground, uh, a set of spring-loaded teeth emerged from the lift shaft to stop him and his platform from falling. And those teeth had been held in place by the tension of the cable, so that once the tension was released, (laughs) so were the teeth. It's kind of like the snap of a mousetrap, really. And is is that still basically the method they use? And yeah, look, there's now um, other methods um, that where um, an increase in speed will trigger the, a similar response. But yeah, that invention of the safety lift um, is basically the foundation for all of the uh, lift safety mechanisms that we still have in place today. It's a great example of a single invention which then changes the shape of everything. I mean, it changes the shape of cities, doesn't it? 
Oh, fundamentally, right? So commercial buildings with lifts uh, by the end of the 19th century are suddenly emerging as the tallest buildings in their cities, standing over churches and civic buildings that had dominated the skylines up to that point. And yet, as you say, the skyscraper was born. We can't imagine the modern city without those safety lifts. And they also fundamentally sort of flipped the real estate market, right? Now, suddenly, the highest levels of tall buildings, which had always had the cheapest rents because they were hard to access, became the most expensive. Okay. But once you've got tall buildings, you've then got a new problem, don't you? Because you've got to transport all these workers up to, you know, floor 32, floor 31, floor, yep. you know, etc. 488, that's right. <laughs> so exactly right. So as the buildings grow higher, suddenly that vertical journey takes longer and longer. And so one of the um, obvious solutions to this problem was to try and speed up the lift itself. And we've got to a point now where the world's fastest lifts reach speeds of over 70 kilometres an hour, uh, and they're even pressurised like an aircraft cabin to minimise ear popping. Um, but if you've got a skyscraper that's got dozens or even hundreds of floors, then the top speed of a single lift isn't going to be the only factor determining how long it takes people to get up and down. It's also going to be influenced by how long we've got to wait for the lift and the number of stops on a journey. Okay. I mean, at one point they made that uh, they made the accommodation by saying this is the lift for the chairman and the chief executive only. Exactly right. So we had a kind of social solution to the problem, as you say, which is to just set it aside for the VIPs and leave everybody else to a solitary lift or to the stairs. Uh, but gradually, um, you know, the, the other solution was a sort of technical one to try and install more and more lifts in buildings. But of course, that then creates its own problems, because if the entire, you know, half the floor plate of your tall building is taken up with lift shafts, then suddenly it becomes a bit commercially unviable. Uh, you know, there's not enough space left to rent to make it worth your while to build the building. Okay. So, the challenge, so, you, so you get yeah. in something like the World, the World Trade Centre, the idea of the express lift suddenly comes in, into, into, into the history of this. That's right. And so, you know, it, it's probably, we often maybe think that that sort of competition that we see over the course of the 20th century about who can build the tallest building is all about sort of civil engineering and architecture. But actually, so much of it is actually shaped by the vertical transport problem. So the twin towers of the World Trade Center are a great example. They were the tallest buildings in the world when they were completed. But it was an innovation in lift technology, as you say, that made that possible. They kind of solved that time-space dilemma with the introduction of a whole set of express elevators with sky lobbies that allowed people to access different parts of the towers really quickly, kind of like the vertical equivalent of an express train, really. Um, and since that time, we see um, lift efficiency being increased with the use of uh, computing, uh, minimising wait times automatically with all these complex algorithms to allocate lifts in response to different requests and different traffic patterns across a day. Okay, we still, I mean, in normal times, it's, it's fine now because there's only two people in the lift, but in normal times, we still don't know where to look, do we? Oh, that's right. So this is the other thing about the invention of the lift is that there's a whole social experience that comes with it. And um, in the early days of lift transportation, like sharing a lift with strangers was a totally new experience that required a whole bunch of getting used to and a, a whole new etiquette's kind of emerged. So as you say, we all kind of uh, initially were policed. There were attendants in lifts who were operating them. But nowadays we find ourselves there on our own and we've all kind of learnt where to stand and where to look and, and how not to interact with our fellow passengers. Um, and 
I often like have reflected on this, even just thinking about my own kids when they were little. You know, you watch them roaming around the lift well and jumping up and down in the lift when it starts to move and chatting with strangers and pretty, <laughs> pressing buttons with all kinds of delight and just realising how much we've, as adults, all internalised how to behave in these spaces. That they'll learn. I mean, yeah. in, unless we get stuck, of course, still people occasionally get stuck, don't they? Oh, yeah. And it's actually becoming a growing problem as lifts in cities like ours start to age. There was a 60% increase in the amount of lift rescues between 2014 and 2019 in Sydney. Um, And so that can actually really cause anxiety for a lot of folks, right? Um, While lift travel is very safe... um, that fear of being stuck in it can be uh, very fear-inducing. And, um, you know, infamously, uh, back in 1999, there was an office worker in New York who hopped in a lift for a cigarette break one Friday night. His lift broke down and he spent the next 41 hours in that lift before someone finally noticed he was there. And uh, there's this incredible time-lapse video of that floating around online because there was a camera inside the lift um, and definitely not recommended viewing for anybody that's got that lift anxiety. <laughs> if you've got lift phobia, don't watch it. The, the serious side to, to broken down lifts is, is a social equity thing, isn't it? Oh, exactly right. So um, just as our ability to move across the city is, you know, shaped by factors like class and gender and age, the same is true of all this vertical transportation. So as our cities do spread up and down, then installing lifts can unlock all manner of places in our cities for people who just can't use the stairs, but they're expensive to install and to maintain. And so when they're not provided or when they break down, that can really result in all kinds of exclusion or isolation. So we could think, for instance, about uh, people who are unable to access places like apartments in buildings without lifts or even train station platforms that are only accessible by stairs. And in Sydney, for instance, there's still over a quarter of our train stations here that aren't wheelchair accessible and require stairs to get onto the platform. Okay, so never travel in an elevator again without understanding how it's changed the cities that we live in and it's kind of changing them still. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so all uh, we still see, you know, these pressures for densification that are going to require, you know, the installation of more and more of these lifts. And particularly if we don't maintain them, as we see in sometimes in uh, poorly maintained, say, public housing buildings, um, you know, they can provide all that access on the one hand, but people can kind of get marooned in the sky, literally, if the lift breaks down and isn't repaired or isn't maintained well. So it's almost like going back to that quote at the start that while most of us, most of the time can depend on those elevators it's it's not true for everyone um, and it's really an ongoing challenge for urban design and for planning for a fairer city to make sure we make that up and down travel as accessible and universal as we can and as safe as otis made it in 1853 what a great lesson thank you so much kurt oh thanks very much for having me richard That's Associate Professor Kurt Iverson, urban geographer at the University of Sydney with another Self-Improvement Wednesday. You can listen again online at abc.net.au slash sydney. There you'll also find details of how to subscribe to the free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Get one of these lessons every week. Next week, Dr Jodie Rowley, Curator of Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Biology at the Australian Museum with another Self-Improvement Wednesday.